0: Okay, so today's podcast is a little longer than usual, but it's because I could not stop grilling today's guest. Tina Shermer Sellers is a sexologist from Washington and is honestly just an utter genius. You're going to love this podcast. Um, If you have ever had any questions about sex and the church and Christianity as a whole, you're going to want to listen to this. And so without further ado, let's dive in. Really excited to have my good friend Tina Shermer Sellers on uh, the podcast today. Tina is just one of the most incredible people I have ever met. I had the privilege of meeting her in January um, and uh, she told me what she did and my my mouth just kind (laughs) of dropped, my chin dropped, my eyes popped and I was like, this person is someone I want to get to know. Um, And so, Tina, welcome.
1: It's good to have you on.
0: And um, why don't uh, I, with that introduction, you know, I, I I won't do the disservice of telling people who you are and what you do. What, what I'll do is that I'll let you introduce yourself. Maybe you could tell us who you are, what you do, and, and maybe most importantly, why you do it. Uh,
1: yeah. So as you said, my name is Dr. Tina Schumer and. I am an associate professor in the Department of Marriage and Family Therapy at Seattle Pacific University in Seattle, Washington. I've been there 25 years, so pretty long time. I'm the director of uh, the Medical Family Therapy Program, which looks at the impact of illness on people's lives and works alongside physicians and places, family therapists in outpatient medical settings to work alongside patients and docs. Um, I've also taught their human sexuality class which is a required course for therapists, for about 25 years. And that's had a huge influence on the trajectory of my career the last 15 years or so. And um, so that actually uh, led me into a lot of study on the impact of the purity movement on, uh, I always want to say kids, but it's really people in their sort of 30s, sort of on down, people who hit adolescence after 1990. 293. Mm. And, um, and that really happened, um, in part because of, well, I can talk about that later, but anyway, that, that happened. Uh, <laughs> there was some, just some big changes in culture that affected a lot of people. And, um, mm. so that led me to become what's called asex certified as a sex therapist. So that's the American association of sex educators, counselors, and therapists. So I added Asex certification as a sex therapist to my list of things that I have as a licensed marriage and family therapist. And now I'm asex certified sex therapist. So I'm this weird combination. I'm, I'm a Christian marriage and family therapist, who's a medical family therapist, who's also a sex therapist. And there's not very many of us around and people, like you say, their eyes kind of pop out, you know, when I say, this is who I am and what I do. But it's a really wonderful combination of Uh, platforms and um, multidisciplinary areas to be involved in and and stories of people's lives to understand and navigate Um, rather than to be siloed in one particular area. I really uh, find myself in many different areas and many different conversations, whether it's medicine or education or theology. Um, And people's lives are bio, psycho, social, spiritual, sexual. So all the clients that walk into my office and all of the students that walk into my office, they have physical bodies, emotional bodies, you know, mental, spiritual. And so actually being trained in all of those areas has been an incredible gift to me. So, but it was accident or led or providential, however you want to think about that it. it happened that way. So
0: that's awesome. I'm just, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking, wow, that's such a holistic training, you know, and I think the church has such a problem with dualism, doesn't it? And, and you just, you kind of undo that in so many ways. But, but talk to me about this, right? Okay, because um, sex and Christian, like, I feel like in, in, in my naivety, uh, and maybe in my upbringing in, in the Christian world, sex and Christian tend not to go well <laughs> together, at least publicly. Um, they it, it might be having great sex in the bedroom, but we don't talk about it. We oh. don't. We don't talk about it. Was that Was that something that was natural for you to talk about sex, or was that something that you 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 know to go into teaching about sex and human sexuality was that natural to you? Uh, what What was your yeah. upbringing in in, in well, that sort of world? It
1: was, and and I didn't really realize that I grew up in a really weird family until I was like thirty. <laughs> um. So I grew up in a Swedish immigrant family. And um, so my family was very European, and they talked about sexuality and bodies like they talked about health and wellness and nutrition Mm -hmm. and what we were having for dinner. And it was woven into life. And I don't, there was never one talk because it happened all the time. Whether we were talking about something serious or whether we were talking about something lighthearted. I talked to my mother, my father, my aunties, my grandparents, you know, it, it just always wow. was. And I had a very affectionate family and, um, I think my grandmother wore a bikini her entire life, you know, um, it was just very <laughs> European. And that was at
0: the beach, right? Not just day to day throughout yeah, the house,
1: right? I No, <laughs> like when we were on vacation and stuff, so, but I thought that was normal. And I tell some of these stories in the book that I wrote. Um, And really it wasn't until I was teaching the human sexuality class and I have my students write their sexual autobiography and I was reading some of the stories that I realized that, you know, really it's about 95% of people that grow up in homes that are silent or silent and shaming around sexuality. And I just didn't have that kind of a home. It was just, it was just considered normal that you had a body and that at some point you were going to fall in love and want to share your body with somebody and you needed to make sure that you were loved well. And that was just an integral story. I watched it lived out in front of me. And I just thought bodies were good and were a gift. And Mm. I didn't know that that was weird. I just didn't know that was weird. And so my first job actually straight out of college was teaching junior high and high school. And I taught science and I taught sexuality to junior high and high schools. And I couldn't think of a job that could be more fun than that, frankly. And when I started teaching at the graduate level, they needed someone to teach the sexuality class. And I just was so eager to do it. And then I noticed none of my other faculty members wanted to do it. And I thought, you guys are crazy. Like that could be the funnest class. So I was just so, talk about naive. I was so naive to that.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Wow, that's that's brilliant, though, isn't it? That's a, a blessing in, indeed. That that's a prime example of ignorance being bliss. But so you suddenly had this wake up call, though. You said you're reading your students' um, papers and you're realizing, oh my gosh, these people are not having the no. same experience in their upbringing no. as I did. Like, and and you said something about is it ninety to ninety five percent. Yeah, and
1: that's, that's really my number or- because I've been now teaching it so long, and I speak all over the place, and I ask people, you know, raise your hand if you grew up in a home that felt open to you around sexuality. You remember learning as you were growing up about your body and gender and sexuality. And, and it felt like an open and safe conversation for you between your parents and maybe other members of your family. And I have one, two, one to, three, one, to one to two hands that'll go up in a, in a room of about 30 wow. to 50. And um, so it's a very small number of people um and more often than not, those are families that are non-religious versus religious. Um mm. and so it's a very, very small number of people who have grown up in homes that were open. And yet the research so, so- shows that if you grow up in a home that's open and safe around conversations around gender and sexuality, those children get involved with sexuality later, um, make safer sexual choices. Um, they describe themselves as having, uh, more satisfying sexual relationships as adults. And my favorite part of the research is they describe themselves as closer to their parents overall. So what I say wow. to parents, if you want to, your kids to really click with you when they're adolescents, get good at talking about sexuality and gender and that kind of, they're growing up, you know, let me help you do that because that kid's, feel like, oh, my parents, I can talk to them really about it. If I can talk to them about sex, I can talk to them about anything.
0: Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. Right. I mean, like I don't know any parents that don't want to be close to their kids. And yet I can imagine many parents in a a desire to stay close to their kids are like, let's just not talk about this. Let's not go there. Um, But so talk to me about this, this whole race in a silent or a silent and shaming culture, which seems to be predominant in Um, Christian homes, at least for the kids that are, well, you say kids again, I've said it's the same, sort of 30 years. So there were kids, you know, 20, 15 years ago that were thinking about these kind of topics. And that conversation wasn't happening. Why? Is that something that has historically been in place in Christianity? Is it something that's newer? Is it something that goes back all the way through to Judaism? Uh Like, Talk to me about the history of that a little bit and why you think it is. Yeah,
1: well, I actually asked that very same question as I was reading, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, I've been reading these papers since the early 90s. So then I had students that had gone through their adolescence, you know, 15 years before that. And I was, you know, seeing shame and, and stuff. But then there took this radical increase in you know, humiliation, sense of disgust, hating of their body, lots of sexual dysfunction, um, lots of naivete about sexuality and their body, just this dramatic increase right around the year 2000. And it repeated every single year. And the the stories were heartbreaking. Like I was in tears reading them and I didn't know what I was seeing. And so I started finally asking the question, what happened? What's happening to these kids? And so, and asking a couple of them, tell me about you're upgrading. Tell me about what, what was going on for you and started to learn about the stories of what was happening in their youth groups. So they were going to their youth groups and their youth groups, they were being told don't have sex before marriage. Yes. But also be pure in mind and heart. So don't think about sex or sexuality or connection and pleasure. Don't want it. Don't desire it. So not only don't think about it, but don't desire it. You don't don't want it. Um, And so at 10, 11 and 12, when they were first getting into their, you know, young youth groups or pre adolescent youth groups, that was, of course, no problem. Right. They wanted to please their parents. They wanted to, you know, honor their God, all of that. And no hormones were on board. Right. So they could have little crushes. That was fine. You know, it's very normal for fourth and fifth graders to sort of have their little crushes and talk to their same gender friends about it. But then we get into 7th and 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade. We've got hormones on board. Boys between the ages of 13 and 15 have 20 times the amount of testosterone dumped in their body. That's like going from 8 ounces to 2 gallons. They go from a bicycle to a rocket ship. You know, every boy does. We don't tell them this, but this is exactly what happens to them. And now we're saying to them, don't think about sexuality sexual desire what's happening and don't feel it well that's like telling someone not to breathe and now we've told them that if you do you're perverted something is wrong with you mm. right which yeah. to the most earnest child and the most anxious child the only meaning they can make is something is profoundly wrong with me at the mm. core level and so these kids internalized that message like I must be bad. I I must be horribly wrong. And I can't get this out of me. I'm trying everything I can to get this out of me. God, take this out of me. But of course, it doesn't come out of you because it's hardwired into you. God put it in you. So what they were Mm -hmm. being told, they would go to youth group and they would sit there and somebody would, you know, the youth leader would talk about this as they're passing around a flower and they're being told to take a petal off the flower as the flower's going around the circle. And then they hold up a stem at the end, or a piece of pizza, and they're told to take a bite out of the pizza, or a jar, and they're told to spit in the jar, or they hold up a piece of foil that's perfect as the youth leader crumbles it up and then unfolds it. So they have these visuals in front of them, and they're, Mm. you know, the ones that survived better were stubborn and had some sense in their gut that this was wrong, But the ones that were most hurt were the most earnest, tenderhearted, anxious, beautiful people. And it was heartbreaking then to meet them when they were 25 and they had been having this narrative inside themselves for a decade or more because it had crushed them, just crushed them, you know, biologically, psychologically, spiritually, spiritually. And it was manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. And so I asked that very same question. I asked the question, has the church ever got sexuality right? Or did it just get that wrong? I I grew up in the Jesus movement. And so I, I was born in Washington, but I went to Southern California in my teens. And the Jesus movement, if you know anything about that time in history, um, it was, you know, post the 60s. It was a time when you were really cool if your testimony included being saved from LSD. I was not cool. I was a cheerleader. <laughs> I did not have a cool testimony. But but you went to these rock concerts on the weekend at like Calvary Chapel with Chuck Smith. You know, it was, and people were yeah. coming down in droves to accept Jesus. And it was just, talk about a positive time in Christianity. And so there was just so much warmth and there was this don't have sex before marriage, but we're so grateful that you're here loving Jesus and loving each other and not dying of drugs that sexuality beyond just don't have sex before marriage and take good care of each other. That was the primary message. So nobody was micromanaging anybody's life. So the undercurrent message underneath that was, If you were going to become sexual, make sure you were in love and cherished and smart. That was the undercurrent message. Um, It wasn't said overtly, but it it was there. And so people weren't in your business. And um, so it felt healthy, I think, in in lots. It felt positive, like there was a positive message there. So I really asked that question very honestly. Like, did Christianity ever get it right? Because I knew it didn't in this generation that I was looking at. And in my generation, because I had the family that I did, it felt like, well, that felt like a pretty okay way to be raised, you know? And um, so I started to look back in time. And what I found was Christianity has had a mind-body split since Hmm. before Jesus' time. So it started with the philosophers in 300, you know, um, BC. And it, it was in place, in culture. And even though Jesus was who he was and loved the marginalized, stood up against um, any kind of injustices going on in the church and outside the church, um, was very egalitarian and mutual in the way he loved and how he loved, um, this mind-body split and patriarchy really continued in the church. And mm. the sexual ethic that we've had in the church got solidified really around Constantine, when Constantine got the power, became a Christian and had the power to um, appoint people in the church, what they were doing at that particular time was vying for who was most spiritual by who could deny their body the most. Who could deny pleasure and who could deny the body? And so, Mm. we had the mind-body split already. The mind was great; the body was beautiful. That's what this philosopher said, but it wasn't as important as the mind. So, by the fourth century, it was the body took you away from God. We need to deny it. We need to shove it down, and we need to Mm. um, hold up the spiritual. And Constantine. Then it was like, who were the people that were doing that the best? Who, Who were the men? that we're doing this the best. (laughs) And that solidified then that sociopolitical situation happening at the fourth century with Constantine solidified the beginning of the sexual ethic that we called the Christian sexual ethic. It had nothing to do with Jesus. I don't think Jesus would have endorsed that. He wouldn't have endorsed it being only patriarchal, excluding women. He wouldn't have excluded the body because we know that he honored the body in many different times in his ministry. We know that he allowed that woman to come in at, the, at that dinner party and just honor him with her body on his body. Because, and that love was so sincere. And he honored that. And he turned to his disciples and the people that had invited him for dinner. And he said, what did you do? What did you do when I came? <laughs> right? So we know that Jesus probably would not have endorsed that. So what I found was we've had different, what I would call aesthetic movements throughout Christian history where we tightened the belt and, um, and then we've loosened it and tightened it and loosened it and tightened it, but we've never tr- and, and most of those, if you follow them, you know, we've burned witches at the stake and we've, we've done all kinds of things. They've usually, we've had prohibitions, you know, whatever. They've usually come when we've gotten frightened socially by either a plague or an economic downturn. So they've all been sociopolitically driven. And that's what we do when we get frightened as people. We, we rein in and we try to control, right? So this is what happened in the late 70s and early 80s. We had an economic downturn. We had a reaction to the feminist movement. And, um, and we had, uh, at the middle of the 80s, we had the rise in AIDS. And then we had the increase in the moral majority and the religious right. We had this sort of thing happen at the same time. And so we had this big clampdown that happened. And so we've seen this happen in history. And, um, mm. and that's kind of what happened out of it was the um, wow. True Love Waits movement that began in 1992 with the Purity Pledge and this whole purity movement.
0: Yeah, gosh. Wow. And I, I can remember this, right? So I, I'm kind of your target audience here in some ways of like, I'm in my mid thirties and I probably, I, I don't, I don't remember ever having like a purity ring or giving anyone a purity ring or any of those sort of things, but I remember, you know, I, I remember my first girlfriend coming to me and giving me this book by a guy called josh harrison saying you have to read this and it was like what was called how i kiss dating dating goodbye goodbye. or something um and and it was basically like the most like oh it's just the most legalistic book of like the do's and don'ts that basically said you have to be like at arm's length at all times for me um and and i just remember being like this my late teens just thinking hell no this just is not good but also carrying all this shame from my parents being silent about sex having no teaching about sex having no uh, or if there was any teaching it was very much this is not good i mean there was plenty of teaching about don't watch porn don't do this don't do that you know i mean it was all these sort of things so all sex was kind of associated with that stuff so i i'm i'm hearing i'm clicking this and, and absolutely getting it and so what what's the answer to this sort of stuff i mean like People that are is it is it to divide the the dualism is that the thing to go after is it to go after purity movement in and of itself is that the problem yeah. do you know what I mean where where do we where do we point our swords or fingers or whatever we're gonna attack it with well,
1: I, I really think we have to there's a couple of things we need to do and 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 I w- went after this in in the book that I wrote so I I said well if we never did develop a Christian sexual ethic what would it look like. Well, I asked two mm-hmm. questions. What would it look like to develop a Christian sexual ethic based on what we learned from Jesus' ministry? How did, what did we learn about loving and how he treated people and the body? And what would it look like to develop uh, a sexual ethic out of the new covenant, since that was never done? Right. And I, I believe we have so much information in his ministry to do that. So, I, I put mm. that kind of thing in the book that I wrote. But then I also said, I also asked the question if, if we didn't do it in, in the development of the Christian church, I don't, I don't believe that God left us with nothing. So, mm. where then is it on the Judeo Christian line? Because okay. it must right. be somewhere. You know, because I think, you know, God must have known we, we in our foolishness. We're not going to develop a, Chris, a, a, a Christian sexual ethic, right? So so I went further back into Jewish scripture and Jewish Hebrew mystic writing. I just read everything I could because I, I'm Swedish, so I'm stubborn you know so I thought okay, mm-hmm. it's got to be there. So I just started reading back and just looking for where is it And I found some amazing sex positive stories. In, in Hebrew writing. Many, many, wow. many. And um, in fact, one of the things I found is called the Vav Ona, which is actually a sexual ethic guideline. There's about eight or so guidelines. Most of them are from the Vav Ona. Some of them are from fertility guidelines that are all Jewish. They're still taught today. And they're, wow. every single one is sex positive. Every single one. And you can raise your children by them. You can run your relationship by them. You can run your dating life by them. Not one of them is negative. You know, wow. it's just—it's wow. very, it's wonderful, and they are elegant, like they are brilliant. Um, and mm-hmm. and I'm when I found it, I was like, I had to pick my jaw up off the ground, like, you know. So they yeah, they are. You know about you know we. We don't make love when we are intoxicated. We don't coerce, you know. We don't force. We um, celebrate, you know. And sexuality is for our lifetime. The idea that the elderly were not um, sexual in the Torah was an unheard of thing. There was an understanding that you were all things are permissible unless, as long as they're desired by both partners. Um, you know, there's that. This is the one that blows people away the most is that. Um, Sex is a woman's right and not a man's.
0: Wow! Explain okay. that for me. Talk, talk, talk. because so that, that, uh, that does not sound like a church.
1: <laughs> so, sex is a woman's right and not a man man's. In fact, it is the man's obligation. The vow of Ona it says that it's the man's obligation to make sure that every time they touch, she is to experience pleasure and joy. Wow. Now, not only does that flip the Western view on its head, and every time I read it, the the women in the audience always go, you know, Um, (laughs) so, you know, on the obvious, you know, everybody's cheers about it. But what is incredibly elegant about it, when you look at it more deeply, is this Mm. men in midlife is when they begin to realize that what grounds their purpose in their life, which is what drives them through their 20s and 30s, is their relationships. It's the other. That's what they tend to realize in their 40s and 50s is that, wait a minute, all this hard work I've been doing, what makes it make sense is my kids and my partner. That's what Mm, makes all this make sense. Well, when you raise a boy to start to pay attention to other early on, it's not going to be about you, baby. It's, you need to make it about the other. Mm. You need to study the other because that's going to make your life make sense. Then you have a chance of a man having a satisfying, deeply intimate relationship, maybe by the time he's 30, rather than waiting until he's 50. Now flip yeah. that around and talk to the girl and say... Sweetie, it needs to be about you. When you start dating, don't date anybody unless he makes it about you, unless he wants to study you. Because if he doesn't, he's not worth your time. So now she has to realize she's important. She's valuable. Her pleasure is important. She needs to know her body. It is value. It is highly valuable. She is highly valuable. So now she's not looking at other, making it about other. She is realizing her belovedness, which is what women need to do because, see, they are always making it about other. That's their natural tendency half the time. But it's not always to her benefit that she does this because at midlife, what do women usually finally do? They say, I'm tired of making it about everyone else. It is time for me to have purpose in the world outside of everybody else. So now there's half a chance that she might begin to do that, to have a much more balanced life in her 30s rather than her 50s. So now her kids can see her living a balanced life when she's raising them rather than having watched mom ignore herself the entire time and be angry and resentful, right? Like, why was mom so crabby all the time? Well, because mom (laughs) took care of herself because she didn't know how to because her mom didn't and her mom didn't and her mom didn't, right? So this vow of Ona is so elegant and it's thousands of years old. Wow. So that's just fun. I mean, there are many stories in the book that I found. And so what I found was there was, is a relentless God that has been trying to tell us forever that this body that we are in, that seeks connection and pleasure, that has five senses to enjoy creation and each other, is on purpose. It's to help us know our belovedness every single day. And the fact that Christianity has denied it, has been a way that has kept us from understanding God and understanding God's belovedness. Like, making love to someone that you love is the place that the body, mind, heart, and spirit comes together. The Hebrew people believe that that is the Holy of Holies marriage. Mm. That that is where you meet the Spirit of God. In fact, when when Greek Orthodox couple... They seek to make love on the Sabbath because if they do, it's a double blessing. It's a double nikfa if they make love wow. on the Sabbath. So lots of lots of Greek Orthodox people have, are, are not Greek. Excuse me, um, uh, Orthodox people. Jewish yeah. Orthodox. Yeah. Um. Sure. I was just talking to a Greek Orthodox friend last night. Um. um <laughs> will tell you that they remember their parents kind of disappearing in the middle of the yeah <laughs> on the Sabbath. How wonderful is that as a kid to grow up knowing that your parents are taking care of their marriage? Mm -hmm. Like, I have had so many college kids say to me, I don't remember seeing my parents be affectionate ever when I was growing up. I don't ever remember seeing my parents' marriage. I saw them as parents. I never saw their marriage. That's heartbreaking. The best thing you can do for Mm -hmm. your child is to help them see a marriage. Wow. It's the only thing that gives them Last. an example of what they can have.
0: And so, is uh, you, would you say then, um, talking about how we how we deal with this, how we cope with this kind of like thing that's been put in our lap? I mean, that there is this this train of good that we can find throughout history, and and so many gems. I mean, even you saying that about how great it is for the woman, but how great is that for the guy to suddenly be like, oh, I'm around for my kids to grow up and actually be there, right? Because as much as everyone's going, oh, why is mom so crabby? Because she doesn't have this purpose being fulfilled. Why is dad not here? Where is he? Right? (laughs) Because he's off doing his purpose and has a bad value until the kids are gone. And so I mean, there's all these different dynamics that are there for us to find. But um, do you think um, then the the onus is then on us now, not just in teaching it, but creating those environments, creating those environments where we raise our kids, where we where we talk. I mean, I, I've got a, a group of young adults here that I kind of um, help lead. And I, we had this, this person that came and, and stayed with us for about five, six months. And they were from Germany and, and Germany is a pretty open liberal kind of place. I love going there. Cause they get to go to the saunas and they they do saunas better than we do saunas. Um, you know? And, and she's like, you guys always talk about sex. I, I think it was quite a compliment that a German thought yeah. that we in the UK always talked about sex. And, and I'm like, yeah and she's like do you always do that like what's the deal and and I think part of it is I just want to see this thing yeah. die I don't want to see this this I mean these are young adults they all are through the roof on hormones still probably a little bit from the <laughs> yeah. teenagers especially because most of them have abstained and they all have boyfriends yeah. or girlfriends and they're all thinking about these things they're all desiring these yeah. things like so creating that normative to talk about or as parents creating a normative that mom and dad are gonna go yeah. have sex exactly. <laughs> that's gonna happen how does that work though? How do we do that in a, in a healthy way? Because, um, you know, with my upbringing, I'm, I'm fear. I'm, that's like, that's like, um, torture for a lot of people. You know, I often joke about people when their parents are having sex and they'll like, you know, hands over their ears, over their eyes going, Oh no, 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 I don't want to think about my parents having sex. Or how does that become a normal thing? How do you raise uh, children in that way?
1: Well, I think when it's, when it's woven into life, it doesn't become so, ah, you know, um, I can remember one time coming, oh, I'll just tell a story from my life. You know, I grew up where it was, okay. you know, you, you talked about it, or you joked about it or whatever. I can remember coming home from college one time and um, my dad had moved into a, a, had moved into a, a new place and, um, and they had a lofted bedroom kind of over the living room. And I had a boyfriend, but we weren't having sex. And so we would swap, when I would come home from college, we would swap who got my room and who got the living room right? And uh, because he would come visit when I would come home from college. And so this was one of the nights where he got my room and I got the living room. And so my dad was so so I said to my dad, I said, you know, the least you could do was when I come home, you know, like, let that not be a night that you have to make noise. And he said, don't come home. That's what he said. He says, don't come home. If it (laughs) bothers you, don't come home. That was That, and my dad and I had, we had, I've lost him now, but we had the closest relationship in the world. So he could say that and giggle and know that what he was saying is, sweetie, this is a part, this is a wonderful part of my life and I'm in my sixties and I'm not giving it up for you or anyone, you know, and (laughs) that, and then I could laugh and say, okay, you're right. You know, like deal with it, you know, um. This that actually was good for me, you know, and it wasn't mm-hmm. like it was any you know big deal. But um, I think that yes, you you are mindful and careful, and you lock your door and you say, if I have this sign on my door, you know, mommy and daddy are playing. <laughs> on this side.
0: Don't come and, on in.
1: <laughs> you know, knock first or whatever. Um, but I do think that it's worthwhile for kids to know that you have your own relationship. And that there are private spaces in the house that are yours. And um, mm-hmm. and now there are times when you have infants and stuff like that where, you know, there's blurry lines, obviously. Um, but as kids get older, you know, you want to develop something where, you know, there's a sign that goes on your door or the door when it's closed. When people have their, do- you know, their uh, bedroom doors closed, people knock before they come in or um, whatever. And that kids see their parents leave together to go out on dates or weekends or whatever. And that you're explicitly saying, we're taking care of us. We came before you and we will be beyond you because Mm. this is our unit. We are both your parents and we are each other's. And that gives kids a deep, I mean, research shows, it gives kids a deep sense of security. So... Hmm. I think that that is important. And so seeing affection and seeing embrace and even hearing giggles behind the door is a good thing for kids to know. And so also then when they learn about sexuality and they go, you and dad do that or you whatever, whatever, same sex couple or whatever, you guys do that. Yes, we do, because it's a it's the way in which we express love to each other as adults. And someday you're going to be an adult, too. And you'll find that you will desire to share love in that way, too. Um, it has a lot of responsibility to it. And so you wait until you're an adult, but you will probably find that you will want to do that, too. Um, so, you know, it's just you weave it in. It's it's what I call soundbite sex conversations. They're short and they're quick and they're right to the point you know, and they're age appropriate yeah. to the situation. Sure. Yeah. So I think it can be wow. woven in very easily.
0: Sure. Okay. That's, that's really, really cool stuff. Can I, can I go on a minor tangent? I feel like we're on the same topic, but this might go off somewhere else. But so I, I've been married. Um, I'm getting married again in, yeah. in August. Um, I'm not Mormon. I, 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 I've i had a divorce in the middle, um, but uh, I, I have lots and lots and lots of married couples as friends. Many of them have kids. Many of them kids that have left. Many of them got kids still now. Many of them are thinking about having kids. But the one thing I hear again and again and again and again from married couples that currently have kids is, we never have sex, or you think you're going to have sex all the time, but wait till you have kids, or you know these these phrases come out all the time. And so this concept of making sex normative, I mean, I don't know if it's a chicken and egg, if it's a thing of like because we can't. Allow our kids to know we're having sex. We don't have sex. A a lot of it's like we're tired, we're exhausted. I mean, there's 110 things, but I mean, this is part of your job, I presume. Sex therapist, like, is getting this going again or whatever. But if if that's what I'm hearing day in day out, I guarantee people listening to this, there are hundreds, thousands of people listening to this that are in this situation. What, what, what's the answer to that, right? Because it's obviously a clear cut, simple tick, and we're done answer, right? (laughs)
1: No, and I, I love that you asked that question because you're right. There are millions and millions of people not having sex and, and it's Mm. for, um, many reasons, but let me say that the, one of the primary reasons is because we have not had adequate sexual education. So people actually don't know what sex is. They don't Mm. know their own bodies and they don't know what sex is. And sex is so then narrowly defined for themselves and for their partnership that the only sex they know no longer works for the life they're living. Right. And it quickly becomes transactional. And the minute you turn sex into an obligation, the person that it feels an obligation for desire will be gone. How many of us like to do things that are an obligation? None of us. None nope. of us. So <laughs> desire is want. It's want. And so obligation is never want. It's it's you know it's the opposite of want. So you have to create want. And so want is circumstantial. It literally is circumstantial. So people have to understand that desire is something you create, you create want, Mm. then you have to look at the situation that you're in. So here's an example of how we mess people up. The church and culture both have notoriously said that sex equals intercourse for the heterosexual Mm. couple. Our gay and lesbian and trans couples in this one category have it so much easier because nobody has defined sex for them. When Masters and Johnson, their last piece of research, because they did observational research, their last piece of research, they were looking at all of the different types of couples, gay, lesbian, trans, and straight. The people that were having the worst sex The most boring, they didn't build anticipation, that it was over fastest was the straight couples because they went at it. They went straight to intercourse and it was over. Everyone else teased and built anticipation and they didn't do the same thing and blah, blah, blah. And it went on a long time. Nobody was defining it for them. The culture's too small. It's too small in the gay and lesbian and trans communities for it to be defined for them. So they they wow. fall in love, and they do what they feel like doing that moment, that day, that hour, whatever, right? Hmm. You know, two gay men adopt an infant, let's say. They take that infant to the six-week checkup to the pediatrician. The pediatrician doesn't look at one of them and say, are you ready to have intercourse again? Did your vagina feel ready to have intercourse again? No. You know, but I can tell you that the pediatrician or the OB says that to the female. She's like, "Ah!" you know, <laughs> Don't come here. you know, so, you know, they get to decide they're exhausted. They want to sit next to each other and you know, masturbate. That's as much as they have energy for. Right? Mm. So it, it's completely different. But what happens in the heterosexual world is the church and culture says the real sex is intercourse and everything else is this other thing we call foreplay that kind of doesn't count. <laughs> so then we have reduced sex to this one behavior. That one of us may not feel like doing, may not feel we have the energy for, but now we feel like we should. One or both of us feels like we should, or we're not really having sex. Now we've turned it into an obligation so darn fast that we've begun to kill desire. And now we're living this very boring sexual life. You know, and I think yeah. of it like, any other kind of pleasure that we do frequently, like eat, I do not eat the same dinner every night. If I did, I would throw up. I don't even eat the same breakfast every day. I might do it for a while, but I tend to shift over to something else. Right. Um, and yet we do that in the heterosexual world with our sexual life. We do like the same three behaviors. Okay, it's time. It's been a while. Don't you think we ought to? So we turn it into a transaction and it it really does kill it. And so what I often say to people is I'll, I'll often ask the question, tell me about what the purpose, what you believe the purpose in our sexual life is. What if you had to come up with the best purpose, like really in your heart? And what I tend to hear is pleasure, fun, connection. I hear words like that. And I said, okay. So what if we decided that no, we we cannot define it by behaviors. We can only define good sex if pleasure happens and connection happens, and Um, and or fun, and or you know. But it's got to be pleasurable, and we need to feel connected, and maybe had fun. Eh. okay. (laughs) But anything goes. Anything goes as long as those things happen. Okay? Mm. So now, I've come home from the hospital with a baby or I haven't slept in 2 years because I have a child that doesn't sleep, right? Or I'm under mm-hmm. so much stress at my job because I've got a client that's not paying or I've got a, you know, a manager that is, you know, pooping on my shoulder every moment at work or something. Now I can negotiate with my partner. Here's what connection is going to feel like to me. And here's what pleasure is going to feel like to me. What about you? And and here's how much energy I have. And now we can come up with something. And maybe, you know, we're negotiating sitting in the bathtub together. Maybe I don't really have much energy for something. But now we have to open up the vocabulary. Now. Mm. you know, like I'm sitting in the bathtub. I've got no energy left. You're rubbing my feet. And before we get out, you know, I'm going to you're going to lean up against me and you're going to masturbate while I rub your head. And that is going to feel like connection and pleasure to both of us. We you know, Mm. before we go to bed and that is making love today. Check. Yeah. And that did not feel transactional to either one of us. That felt good. Yeah. And. That took twenty minutes, and we're both happy. That was great sex.
0: That's that's awesome, right? And so let me let me preface this as well, and I'll I'll just warn the audience. But like you know, please be as graphic as you need to be. I mean, I'm, this is going to be a podcast about sex, so people are pre warmed. But um, here's here's something I th- that comes to mind when you say that. Okay, um, I've grown up in the evangelical church, uh, charismatic, Brethren. You know, the whole spectrum within the evangelical church, but. Um, like I said at the beginning, we don't talk about sex, it's kind of a bit taboo, and so, um, you know, I, I hear that advice, and I think this is great advice, and I think this wow, it's powerful. Let's talk about you know where we're at, what we could do. But I'm not necessarily, as a um, maybe a, a Christian that has some hang ups with you know sex, or maybe they've grown up yeah. in this purity movement and they've got all sorts of shame associated with different things. I don't know if I'm okay saying, hey, I don't fancy. Um, having sex right now or sex isn't going to cut it for me right now i'd much rather do this because well what will the other person think about me if i say that or if i entertain the notion of this type of sexual interaction or this type of um you know whatever play fun etc because what i consider on one level play and fun might also on another level if we're going to divide it into spiritual and physical the spiritual side might go but that's really taboo or that's really or and, and what will my partner think?" or I, i'm just i can imagine so many people sort of going <gasps> with you know i mean even I, I can imagine people listening to this podcast and you're talking about a couple masturbating in a bath and doing a headroom and they're thinking like oh well, I I, would i masturbate in front of my partner or you know i mean i, I can genuinely imagine that i'm sure you yeah. can imagine it even more yeah. than me i'm sure you've come across people like that so what what do, like what's the how do you get that ball rolling as discussing transactional things discussion where we're at discussion um Discussing desires, um, you know these kind of yeah. things because we all have desires, right? right? I mean, like right. on, you know, but I don't know how open a lot of people are to discussing those things and, and interacting on that on that level. Or maybe you you might disagree with me on that. I, I don't know, but it feels like in my interactions that that might be a thing. yeah.
1: Well, there's a couple things that I think you're saying. One is how do we deal with the story we've grown up with and the limitation of that story that that may the, the limitation of that story then may, be, may place us in a particular kind of dilemma with regard to having true intimacy in our life. Because if our particular story only allows us to have sexual relationship in a particular way that will cause it to likely be transactional at some point in our life, then we're likely to never have the intimacy that we seek. So then we have to look at our story and we have to unpack our story. So in my, in my book, I talk about a a model for healing that I call, um, frame, name, claim, and aim. So frame is we have to get sex education because we never got it. So we really have to educate ourselves. We really do. And I talk about how you do that because there's so many myths that people have when they've never gotten sex education. They've been told so many things that aren't true. And you need to educate yourself like you do with anything else in life. You need to get rid of all that stuff that's not true and learn what is true. Name is you need to tell your story. You need to tell a safe group of people who love you and who um, are compassionate. You need to find a group to, to do this together with. That's part of what the book it helps with. Who You can hear each other's stories and know that you are not alone, right? And know that a lot of the way that you were raised around us was not helpful to you and have other people help dispel the shame with you because when you take it out of the secret and bring it into the light shame can't live and we know that from shame research that we have to take it out of that secret place and bring it out here right Um, claim is we have to start claiming our body as a good beautiful wonderful thing that God gave us, no matter how it's wired and the way it is, the fact that we have economies that are driven by objectifying people and bodies is not okay, Mm. and our body is good. And the fact that it seeks pleasure and connection is good. We are hardwired, we come out of the womb this way, you walk down the halls of an Alzheimer's unit and you will find people still seeking connection and pleasure, God made us this way and we need to learn to celebrate it, right? And as we do those three things, We will begin to write a new legacy for ourselves. That's aim. We will write a new, and we need to do that so we do just what you're talking about. We change this legacy. We keep it from going on. And we need to stop it because this legacy of the body being bad and sexuality being bad has hurt us for so many generations, and it's kept us from knowing God, and it's kept us from knowing God's love, relentless love for us. You know, through our bodies, through our sexuality, which is such a wonderful way to know God. So that's mm-hmm. one one piece I think of this um, this whole process is really figuring out how to heal. Um, uh, um, another another I think piece of this is I, I think it's it's wonderful for people to um, if they're in a time in their life where they're not wanting to be um, sexual, they're not wanting to have um, sex with somebody, that is, I think, great. You know, If they're like, I'm going to save it for marriage or whatever, that's wonderful. But make sure you know why you're doing it. And I would say, hmm. watch for that part of you that's thinking, oh, because I'm going to be able to have it whenever I want. Because <laughs> it's, it's not a thing you get to have. Because if you turn it into a transaction, like I said, you're going to kill desire. Um, understand that we live in a culture that organizes sexuality around intercourse. And the opportunity that you have when you don't have intercourse. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me say that again. The opportunity you have when you don't have intercourse is to learn to make love if you're in a relationship in so many other wonderful ways. Learn to make love to someone's feet. Learn to make love to their hands. Learn to just look in their eyes and make love to them without saying anything. Learn how to make love to every other inch of their body. If the genitals are off limits, then learn to make love to every other inch. If anything else is off limit, great. Learn to make love to every other inch. I will promise you that your partner will miss those days if you never return to them so have an important reason for why you have it on the shelf not because you're going to take it off the shelf and never return to these days you want these days to be rich so that you have a thousand vocabulary words for making love that now you draw from during the times when you're sick and you're tired, and you're stressed, and whatever, so that you have a a plethora of ways to make love, so you're never bored, right? It's like a tango. A a good tango dancer knows that there's a hundred steps, and her partner will dance two steps, and then based on where he ends that last step, she gets to decide what two steps she's going to do, and he doesn't know, And then based on where she ends her step, he decides what two steps. And the dance is never the same. Just like in jazz music, they know each other so well. They co-create a different piece every single time they play together. That's what great making love is. You don't know maybe what exactly you're going to do. You know it's going to be connecting. You know it's going to be pleasurable. But you have a whole repertoire of things you're going to do. Maybe you do or you don't feel like moving all the way through your arousal cycle and having an orgasm. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just going to be about her or one of you tonight or today. Mm. And maybe it's just going to be about the other one. You know, wow. You know, blow a woman away and make it all about her and not about him. That'll blow her away. How many times have women only had experiences where it's only about him and not about her? Mm. You know, like. You can make it so fun and so pleasurable and so wonderful and not a chore if you learn to think about sex as connection and pleasure. It is meant, and this is what one of the vows of Ona says, it is meant to secure the bond over the lifespan. The only way it's going to do that is if it's not boring
0: yeah, gosh. No one wants to keep doing something
1: that's boring. Right? The same thing over and over. Anything over and over is going to become boring. Anything over and over is going to become boring.
0: Gosh, that's so good. There's so much in that. Like, uh, yeah. it, just, it gets me really excited. Because uh, I just think, you know, and, and maybe there's a lot of gender stereotyping in here and how much of that is cultural, how much of that is inherently, yeah. you know, whatever. Right. You know, we can put that on the yeah. shelf. But there is a, a many gender kind of biases yeah. within this and, um, and and it definitely, definitely. If, if, if I'm honest what I see in my relationships and again it could be that I've got lots of close female friends but they probably might not open as much up to me about some of these topics but it seems to be guys coming to me going oh we never have sex anymore um, uh, she just doesn't want to anymore or she's whatever but I can imagine that uh, speaking as a guy guys probably have a lot less of um, a... We can be a lot more fulfilled, a lot more simply in many ways. Um, And therefore, our possible range of vocabulary doesn't need to be quite as extensive at times. And therefore, would you say that guys probably have a a lot to benefit? I can imagine hearing you speak. I'm like, there's a lot to benefit from guys tapping into this. If we expand our vocabulary, we get what we're wanting. Um,
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. And so, um what what kind of advice would you give to guys for that? Like, how, where do you begin? Yeah. You know, h- how would you begin? Because I'm just imagining tons of guys out here thinking this does sound good. Yeah. I feel like I could get something. Yeah. Added. Well, and, and let
1: me let me say this too. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with your gender stereotyping. But 30 percent mm. of relationships, women are the high desire partner. Okay. Wow. Probably 70 percent men are in, in, when there's a a desire discrepancy, but but 30 right. of the okay. time. So that's still a good chunk. Women are the high desire partner. But in those when there is a desire discrepancy, usually somebody the low desire partner is feeling like sex is obligatory. But let's just go with Mm. the man scenario at this point. What I have learned from guys over the years is they're not just wanting more intercourse. They're not just wanting more sex from their partners, from their wives. Uh, so i'm talking about heterosexual relationships here in in gay relationships men are just so much more able to negotiate things that's just my experience they're just so much better at this mm. but not in the hetero the heterosexual relationship is really more complicated in so many ways right. um, and so but what i what i've learned women think that men just want more sex women don't get men very well but what I've learned from men is they don't just want more intercourse. They want her heart. They want her to open up to him. They want to feel like she's actually there. And if she's just giving him obligatory sex, yeah, they'll take it, but they feel lonely. They feel like, okay, so yeah, I got it, but I'm not getting her. When they really love their wives, they feel like it's not entirely satisfying because I don't feel like I get her. It's like not really working super well for me. Right. So what I will often say to guys, like I'm going to tell you something that's really radical. So I need you to take a deep breath because I'm going to tell you something that's going to like kind of be radical here. What I want you to do is I don't want you to go to your wife when you're feeling horny, when you're feeling high sexual desire, physical desire, Mm. because she senses that she's sensing that you just want to masturbate inside of her, that you're feeling like she's an object and not the object of your desire. And it feels really different for women. And because they've grown up in our culture where they are always objectified, she can sniff it out. Like she's so sensitized to this She doesn't even know how sensitized she is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go take a shower. Like if you usually make love in night or the morning or whatever, you go take a shower, masturbate at the shower, get it through your system, get that big download of prolactin and oxytocin and norepinephrine and just feel good and relaxed. And then... I want you to say to her, I want this to be all about you. It's not going to be about me at all. I want you to teach me about what pleasure looks like entirely for you. It's going to involve touch, but it's not going to necessarily need to involve my penis unless you want it to. But I want you to teach me what pleasurable touch looks like to you. So you need to not be tired. You need to be up open for touch. And if you want to start it with a bath or whatever, but I want you to teach me about what pleasurable touch looks like to you. And it can be all about you from beginning to end. And if you don't know, then I would like to start with you taking a bath and then take you to the bed. And then I'm going to warm up some oil and I'm just going to start at your feet and I'm going to tell you how much I love your feet. And how grateful I am that you have taken such good care of our family by getting up in the middle of the night or whatever, all the things you've done, climbed the mountain, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm going to tell you how much I love your left calf and your right calf and your left knee and your right knee and everything about your body that I love because it's not an object to me. It's you. Every inch of you is you. And I need for you to know that I love you, every piece of you. And I don't need for you to look different I don't need for you to look like a model. I need for you to be you, and I want another day with you. I'm grateful for you. So that she feels seen, known, loved, and accepted because she feels like an object in the world. And this, if you look her in the eyes as you do this and you make her feel seen and loved, you will blow her away. This is how you open up a woman's heart. Because she normally just feels like a receptacle for sperm. Because men have been taught by the church and by culture that you get to use her whenever you feel horny. And and then she's been told better be there for your man. Better just suck
0: right. It. We pull out our little proof text yeah, you for that, just right? Just suck right, it anytime.
1: up. It. Start <laughs> thinking about it all day because he's going to want it. It's not about you. Mm. Yes, it needs to be about her. Wow. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely needs to be about her. As often as it's about you, it needs to be about both of you. It needs to bond you. If it does not bond you, you have missed the purpose. Mm. So, this is how we ruin sex.
0: Yeah, geez, absolutely. And so. Let me ask you. uh, Maybe related. uh, It's probably related in that where my mind goes when you're talking. You're probably going to go, "Where did this come from?" But (laughs) um, I'm just thinking, like, how many? uh, I'm thinking younger couples. Maybe older couples. Maybe some couples just never even learn this. But but how many young couples know what they want? Growing up in the church where sex is taboo, where sex is you know repressed and things. I mean, how did this girl? know how to say this is what pleasure is me, right. this is what I desire this is how, how does a, a young guy I mean in my experience most young girls and guys in the church their only frame of reference for sex is porn or yeah. if they're like maybe lucky like slightly less graphic movie <laughs> you know but it's not it's not something necessarily very real and, and tangible and, and I think guys don't know what sex particularly looks like and girls don't particularly know what, what it looks like for That's them really- uh, because everyone's so different yeah. right um, yeah so, so how, how, do, how do we, I mean, how do you educate on that? How do you, how, how do you educate yourself? How do you educate as a, maybe a parent or whatever? How, how, do you, how do you do that? Or as a youth leader yeah. maybe? Um, I, I can't see many parents get in the church getting excited about their youth leaders educating
1: on that. But... <laughs> oh, I wish. I mean, I'd love to see college, college and young adult pastors really mm. doing really important stuff around this. Um, I think that's a very good point. There's two things there. Both, one, you don't know. And two, you don't know how to speak it. You don't have the language Mm. and you don't feel like you have the permission to say it out loud. That feels very dangerous to speak it. Right. It's so hard. I mean, you know, you've been practicing saying these things, but I'm sure you remember back when you first started talking about sexuality, how hard it is to just even begin to speak it. Right. It just feels like you're breaking so many rules. Right. So. In in my book, I have touch and non-touch practices to just start people even on stepping themselves into it, to just begin to, you know, like, and it begins with letters to and from God, I mean, into hugs and touches, I mean, kisses, I mean, just very slow, but it's because people don't know. And then there are, there are books that I recommend that people start to read and read out loud together so that they're actually hearing themselves speak the words and then begin to just try things together. And I, you know, I've got, you know, all kinds of different like checklists of things, you know, try different touches, different pressure, different, you know, just to begin to develop a vocabulary of do I like that? Do I not like that? And to be, and to give yourself permission to say, Meh, I don't think so. Or, Meh, well, maybe, I don't know, you know, you're learning a whole new thing, you know? It's, it's really like having never cooked a thing ever in your life, but also having not only eaten two things, right? And I don't know, you know, it does, it takes a while, but you are meant to experience connection and pleasure with the person who is your person, you know? And, and, and until you have a person, if you don't have a person, and maybe you won't, you need to have that with you, you know like you are important and your body is important and the fact that it has desires and wants is important and you need to know that your body is and know your own arousal cycle and know how you're wired and i i i have a a project that i started about 4 or 5 years ago called thank where evangel or conservative christians tell their stories like just you know, tell her stories about what it was like to grow up and how they healed and stuff like that. And I have one young woman on there um, who just, she talked about going away to college and taking her first sexuality class. And, and she said, I learned parts of my body. I didn't even know I had, I'm mean, <laughs> sitting in class, reading a book and I'm reading about parts of my body. I didn't know I had because I grew up in the church, you know, she goes, how crazy is that? That I'm 20 years old and I don't know about these parts of my body because no one told me and I never touched myself. She goes, that's wrong. Like, we cannot let that happen. You know, (laughs) she's just so cute. But it's true. She's not alone at all. You know, so we just have a long way to go.
0: Yeah, there was, this is just so good. And I kind of want to keep going and gear, going and going and going. Uh, we'll have to have you back on for sure to talk about some of these things. Can, can I ask you um, maybe to address, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think, I've got about 50 different types of people, but maybe to address a couple of types of people. Um, the first um, is if you could just give one piece of advice, you were limited to one piece of advice um, to um, to leaders in the church um, regarding the topic of sex, sexuality, family, couples, whatever it is, um what is the one thing that you would desperately want to to give into the evangelical church's advice that they would kind of run with
1: yeah.
0: sorry I, I hate limiting yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I think that i would <clears throat> i think if I had one thing <clears throat> I think I would take that vow of ona that's in the book. Because it, it can be taken in so many different directions. And I would I would preach on it. and then and I would talk about how how it has value for all of us. whether you're a parent, whether you're partnered, whether you're not partnered, and that it shows how sexuality is an intentional, important part of our lives that we need to care for. Um, and that it's it's endorsed by God. It's a way that God desires to love us and help us know how beloved we are of God. And that these are guidelines that can really support us and love us. So I, I think that that is the one place I would go. and And then I would just let the church kind of go with it you know like the different- right
0: figure it out yeah as it
1: <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah if i had to just go one awesome. place that would be the place i'd yeah. go
0: wow so that's a great resource is that something that people can find um readily is that can they google that and well, just it's find kind it? of
1: hard to find actually so i have it on my blog and then i have it in my book
0: um okay, but i had great. to
1: kind of dig yeah. it out
0: okay cool well I'll get those links and I'll put them on on the show notes for people um, for sure so Tina we'll, we'll wrap up but like I said we'll definitely have you come back um, what's the best way people can connect with you I mean I know you've got a new book that just came out it literally just came out right just a couple It came weeks out ago,
1: about um, about a month ago now
0: okay yeah, yeah great um, I, I've lost track of time because you sent me an advanced copy I don't know a couple months back now Um but an amazing book for for those that listen. I mean, I just absolutely love it. And you've got this far through the the, the interview. You're gonna love this book. Um, why would someone buy that book? What, what what's the what's the audience?
1: Well, you it's it's, that it's targeted to anybody who's experienced sexual shame in their life at all, whether they came from a religious background or not. Um, so, um, yeah, because if you experience sexual shame, all you have to do is trace that story back, and you're gonna find someone who. Mm-hmm. Had a religious background. If you experience the purity movement, for sure you want to have this book. And then it's also written for clinicians, written for practitioners. So if you're a therapist or a physician or a physical therapist, um, it's written for you too to raise your cultural competency in working with people who've experienced sexual shame. Sexual shame affects every area of people's lives, but most importantly, it affects their ability to do intimacy, connection um, and deep intimacy and relationship with people. And we really want to help people do give love and receive love well, because that is so tied to people's happiness. Um, so it's a, an important thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is that something that you would say, um, clinicians do well in, are they, are they well-versed in sex? And, no, um, not of,
1: in um, the United States or... anyway, in the United States, okay. um, therapists of all kinds, whether you're a psychologist, Uh, marriage and family therapist, social worker, all of those different kinds of psych people have at most one class in sexuality. That's at most, which is wholly inadequate. Um, And then our physicians also only have maybe one class in sexuality. And usually it's like in STIs and STDs and and that kind of thing, anatomy and physiology.
0: All the negative.
1: (laughs) So they're not, um, our research shows in the United States that, at most, 10% of physicians are doing a sexual history. Um, and even when they get education, it goes as high as 30%. So, and most people, uh, research shows, don't ask questions of their physicians because they believe their physicians would be uncomfortable. And the same is basically true with therapists. So we have up to 50% of people describe themselves as having some kind of concern about their sexual life, but they aren't telling anybody. So it's a very uh, prominent problem. So this this book is really out there to try to help people have their own language and then also to help mm. clinicians have a language in a way. We have so many people that are presenting with pelvic pain disorders and erectile dysfunction from religious backgrounds. And um, I have so many doctors mm. coming to me asking for this book because the book's helpful in that way. So, wow.
0: yeah. That's awesome. So this is a very uh, broad-reaching. Uh, I mean, well, who doesn't have sex? Right. Right? I mean, apart yeah. from maybe asexual yeah. people, you're going to want to get this book. Basically, <laughs> that's awesome. Now, you also um, talking about that for for um, therapists and things like that. You founded uh, the Northwest West Institute on intimacy. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and is that like that's a whole other level of uh, resource for people that are in sort of that. World. Right, yeah. Right? So
1: the Northwest Institute on Intimacy was founded to train um, therapists and physicians on, uh, well, therapists in particular to become uh, certified I- as um, sex therapists or to add sex education, sex educator, to become certified as a sex educator to their background so that it raised mm. their cultural competency around sexuality since people weren't getting educated in that. Um, and also in spiritual intimacy, which is really the interface of spirituality and sexuality, because I see that as an important part of people's lives. So we train in that area too. And then we also list on the website, people who have training then in individual couple family, um, sex therapy and mm-hmm. spiritual intimacy. So they have that kind of cross section of holistic training since only about maybe 5% of therapists in the United States have training in all five of those areas. So we list wow. that there. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's maybe another great resource if you're listening to this and you're in therapy, if you're doing that on a pastoral level to that degree where you've got credentials. and Yeah. 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 And our
1: classes awesome. are all put together very succinctly. So you can come from far away and take them. They're either four days or five days. And there's a couple oh, of them. Wow. And you can do all supervision. Okay. So intensive. Thing. Yeah. You can do all supervision right. via this, via Skype
0: or whatever. Brilliant! That's awesome. Wow. And so, how can people follow you? Because you've got a blog. You, you're online as well, and, and I'm sure you have lots to say all the time. How yeah. can people tap into? I mean, I guarantee there's a lot of people listening that do not have a voice in their life that is giving them such great wisdom in the world of sexuality. Um, so, how can they get? So, that in I their have life?
1: a website that's tinashermersellers.com, and on that website okay. there are lots of podcasts and. Um, trainings that I've done in the church around working with youth and adults and all, and all that stuff is free and available to people. If that can be of support to people. Um, so, and there's a, a, a blog there that is gosh, seven or eight years old. That's got a lot of information too. You can just search that around wow. parenting or marriage or, um, spirituality and sexuality in the church or whatever. There's just a whole bunch of stuff there. And then there's thank that has a lot of resources and um, community conversations and stuff around sexuality and spirituality. And then there's um, nwioi.com or the And that's the Institute. And that has resource pages too, where you can go to find out what books I recommend for anything, you know, raising your kids wow. or whatever. And that's also, we have a resource page on the thank God for sex website too.
0: Awesome. Brilliant. And are you present on Facebook, Twitter, these kind of things, social media? Facebook
1: um, at Tina Schirmer Sellers um, and Northwest Institute on Intimacy. You can find me. And then Twitter is at Tina S. Sellers.
0: Wonderful. Okay. So there are so many ways. There's no excuse for people to um, continue having bad sex okay (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) there's just no excuse anymore okay you guys have all sorts of ways to connect with tina um and yeah well thank you so much honestly i loved it Uh, i absolutely loved it i was saying before we started that me and tilly were driving back from a trip this this weekend we were speaking and um and we listened to one of your podcasts on on another one Uh, i think it's called free sex podcast which I recommend based on that one interview it was amazing and I just I got so excited because honestly you just have such a breath of fresh air of real life tangible practical information with such a breadth of actual informational knowledge you know you know what you're talking about as well this isn't just good advice you know from your naughty aunt or something you know this is like this is good good stuff and so i really really appreciate you taking the time to share with us and uh yeah we'll definitely have you back on again it was
1: great to be here
0: all right that was awesome, wasn't it? I loved it. If this is your first time checking out the Grace Course podcast, I'd encourage you to head over to thegracecourse.com, where we put video versions of all the interviews online for free, um, as well as dozens of other resources, topics on hell, the Bible, grace, faith, what it is to walk in the newness of life, um, all sorts of great stuff. There's dozens and dozens of uh, resources there, all completely free. Um, And if you want to be a partner to help keep everything free for everyone. Uh, you can do that for as little as $5 a month and that gives you um, full access to our monthly Q&A calls. We just had this month's uh, Q&A which was discussing LGBTQ and the church. Um, and so you can get access to that. You can get access to the private partners uh, discussion group on Facebook as well. Um, and that would be awesome. It really would to help facilitate all that I'm doing. Go check out GraceCourse.com if you haven't done it. Honestly, it's great. The next interview we've got lined up is with samuel verby um, a researcher within the world of christianity Um, and we discuss the divide within the church between males and females as far as dating culture goes and it is really fascinating Uh, until then have a great week